Man, when it rains, it really, really pours. Well, the Supreme Court, they better find themselves a really big umbrella. Tonight on Laura Coates Live. So don't call it quite a throwback, but all of a sudden it feels a whole lot like Y2K when the new year hits in 11 days from now, the Supreme Court is gonna be like in sync saying bye, bye, bye to their free time. And I mean all of it, because let's just say the Supreme Court is gonna be a little bit busy. The nine unelected men and women who sit on the bench of the highest court in all the land now have the power to decide an election. And I mean again, let's all reminisce for a second back to the days of the hanging chads in Florida. Cause they did it back with Bush v. Gore. That was back in 2000. Now they may have the chance to do it all over again, more than once in multiple cases involving Donald Trump. Today, Trump asked the high court to sit and just think for a bit before they answer whether he has absolute immunity. That's the Jack Smith case right here in Washington, DC. Now, Jack Smith, he wanted a quick answer. Why? Well, maybe he doesn't want to have his time wasted. A trial is supposed to start in March, and he'd rather not wait to find out if he could actually go to trial and make a case against somebody, or will that person be considered immune from prosecution? Now, Trump, on the other hand, apparently he loves a good wait. Why rush into possibly getting rid of a case against you? Pretty ironic, huh? I mean, his lawyers say the case is just so important, so, quote, paramount to public importance, unquote. His lawyers say that the justice moves, it must move in a cautious, deliberative manner, not at a breakneck speed. I'm not sure it's quite breakneck yet, but that's the immunity question. And the court also gets to decide now the eligibility question, the one coming out of Colorado's Supreme Court decision to take Trump off the primary ballot. Now, the Supreme Court's gonna have to decide whether Trump engaged in insurrection and whether the 14th Amendment applies to the most powerful office in the country. And those are two really important questions. A few obvious points here first, though, but these things have to really be said anyway. The court, as you know, it tilts conservative. We know about the different wings of the court, et cetera. And three of those justices that you see in that little yearbook photo on the right side of Lady Liberty's seesaw, the conservative side, they were put on that bench by the former president whose fate they may now have to decide for the election. But don't assume anything. My father always told me, Laura, you know what happens when you assume. I won't spell it out. But all three of Neil Gorsuch, Brad Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, they did hand Trump losses in insurrection-connected cases, so, so much for assumptions. But whatever the court decides, it's going to leave a whole lot of American voters bitter. The court doesn't have the same mm, popularity, shall we say, that it had back in 2000. Ethics questions, the unraveling of precedent, that's had a tad bit to do with all that, right? Let's be honest though, either way, the Supreme Court's reputation is going to take a hit. And you can't ignore the obvious. All these cases are moving through, way through their way through the docket as you at home are of course getting ready to vote. By the time they've actually decided, you might have already cast a ballot. After all, the court's term, it doesn't end until what, June? I mean, I don't know, maybe it's the black robes. Maybe they just love to wait to the 11th hour to make a decision because they often wait until the end of the term, which means that you might not know the whole picture when you step inside the ballot box. 
And it means any delay, no matter how small that delay is, it puts Donald Trump one day closer to simply being able to, at least for the federal cases, maybe make them go away if he is successful in becoming the president. That's a maybe, though. Joining me now, conservative lawyer George Conway, who's a contributor for The Atlantic, and former Trump attorney Tim Parlatore. I'm so glad that both of you are here. Let's first of all just talk for a second, taking a step back. Who thought we'd be here again with the Supreme Court being able to weigh in and maybe decide the fate of a presidential election? I don't want to overstate it, though, because they're not actually deciding whether you can vote and what the vote should be. But who's on the ballot, whether he's immune, how seriously they take it. When you look at it, George, the Colorado case in particular. Yeah. Did that court make the right decision in deciding he can't even be on the ballot? Well, I was initially skeptical of the claim, the argument that the section, that section three of the 14th Amendment uh, disqualifies Trump, not because for any legal reason. I mean, the Federalist Society law professors who wrote the seminal article that sort of got this argument going made a pretty compelling case, very methodical, using exactly the kind of um, uh, interpretive techniques that an Antonin Scalia would have used. And I found it pretty compelling. It was just like, well, it's kind of too good to be true, I thought. Mm. And I thought that, um, you know, there, there, there must be something. There must be something there that could come up. And, and I also think it, it would be better, I think, politically. I mean, this is my bias, that to see him beaten at the polls rather than to see him excluded. But that said, I mean, the law is the law. And, and unless somebody comes up with a counterargument that's coherent, um, you have to apply the law. And what I saw yesterday, and I wrote a piece in The Atlantic today uh, that I commend to everyone, uh, <laughs> that, that I read the dissents, and the dissents, I mean, these, are, these were smart judges. They're supposed to, you know, if they're dissenting, they're supposed to come up with arguments that really, you know, strike at the heart of the majority opinion, and they had nothing. Particularly as a matter of federal law, they had nothing. I mean, the dissents really focused him on two main arguments, right? One was... It feels premature. There's no criminal conviction here for right. insurrection. The other one seemed to be about the vagueness of the language. But the district court in Colorado already said, look, if the framers wanted to have the 14th Amendment apply to the president, then why not put the word president in that particular clause? Neither, as you're talking about, seems to hold a lot of weight for everyone universally. But what is your take on that case? You know, I think they spent a lot of time talking about whether it applies to the president or not, which was not an argument that I found to be particularly mm -hmm. availing. Obviously, it applies to the president. The thing that I was surprised at is how much time they took to define what an insurrection is by using Webster's Dictionary as opposed to Title 18 of U.S. Code. Okay, because the federal government did pass a statute, insurrection, Title 18, U.S. Code uh, 2383, and that is the statute that says if you're convicted of this, you have to serve up to 10 years in jail and you're disqualified from holding the office of the president. That, their, their refusal to address that statute, and in fact, at one point, they just kind of addressed it briefly and said, well, that, that doesn't really apply because it doesn't say that's the only method. But the reality is many grand juries sitting here in D.C. have examined the events of that day. They've all declined to bring charges of insurrection. One came close. One brought charges under you know, the related section of 2384, seditious conspiracy. But well, we don't know what every grand juror was presented with. I hear your point about- In which case DOJ declined. Well, that, that, so, yes, it could be the case, but my, I'm just right. gonna let you finish, but my, my point is, 
where the grand juries, we know, are quite secretive and deliberative. We don't know what they are given to present. But you're absolutely right. Jack Smith didn't charge it. Right. Donald Trump is not charged with insurrection in Washington, exactly. D.C. Exactly. The closest he came was the seditious conspiracy charges, which the Colorado Supreme Court even you know, went through their Webster Dictionary analysis and said sedition is lower than an insurrection. So you do actually have precedent that said, you know, you have convictions for seditious conspiracy, but you don't have a single charge for insurrection. So, George, how do you see it? I mean, the, one of the big arguments that are being made is that not just the idea of the statutes and the code and what was not charged, but, look, voters should be the one to decide this. How dare you take it from the ballot? A common retort is, we've got all sorts of qualifications for the presidency, age, where you're born, your citizenship, all that part of it. How is this different? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that would have been a good argument. 157 years ago, if, if you were in Congress debating the language to be put into the 14th Amendment and Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the fact of the matter is you're absolutely right. I mean, there are a number of qualifications uh, that, that, that are applied to people running for public office, and one of them is the age requirement. You have to be 35. That takes away um, the ability of people to vote for a 30-year-old. But that's, that's life. And this is another requirement. Don't engage in insurrection. It's really not that hard a requirement to meet. And as far, as far as the interpretation of the word insurrection is concerned, I mean, the proper approach is what Justice Scalia would have done, which is to look at the dictionary. You don't look at some other statute that may be written at a different, in a different context for a different purpose. Um, and, 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 and instead of looking at how people understood insurrection at the time, you know, in, in the dictionary. And this was just plain language. And the fact of the matter is, the dissents in, in the case, in the decision, uh, to the decision last night, the people who were objecting to, the judges who were objecting to the decision of Colorado, they didn't even really go there. They yeah. didn't really challenge the definition of insurrection. Well, let me, well, maybe, one did. Maybe one one certainly did. Yeah. I mean, there was the one dissent that did, did go into an analysis of this statute. And look, the, the fact that Congress put this into the U.S. Code, words have meaning. And as lawyers, we can't just sit here and say, well, just because there's an insurrection statute, a federal crime for insurrection, we don't have to really pay attention to that. We can just look, use the dictionary definition instead. No, there are crimes, there are elements. These are things that you know Congress is empowered to put into the U.S. Code, mm -hmm. and the courts have to follow them. Yeah, but, 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 they they but can't just make up their own definition saying, you know, well, because we don't like this particular candidate, we're going to use a proven sedition and you know substitute substitute that for a you know an insurrection because we like using that word. Final word, George. Uh, you know the fact is they use the word insurrection. They didn't say whatever statute Congress uses to prosecute insurrection. They didn't say that it depends on anything Congress subsequently did. It's a standalone provision and it has to be interpreted in terms of the plain meaning of the language. And the plain meaning of the language is, as Justice Scalia and and, and others, and now Justice Kagan follows it too. You look at the dictionary and you look at the contemporary dictionaries, you look at the plain meaning of the word. And I don't know how you can say that somebody who uh, aids, you know, who foments and encourages people to overthrow the peaceful transition of power hasn't engaged in insurrection. I, I just don't see how it, 
you can get there. And we've gotten a bit of a preview, George Conway, Tim Parlatori, of what might be happening in the Supreme Court discussions if they take this case. But my big question, was, was Miriam Webster around with the framers? How long is it? How old is this dictionary? Do we even know? Oh, or, I don't know. I mean, that's rhetorical. I'm kidding. Okay, no, all right, all right. I, don't right. Know. You know, I take you very seriously, I'm not, Laura. Take me, I take you take so me seriously. Not literally. That's okay. a phrase. Who knows? Uh oh. Anyway, well, that, no, don't go there. Don't go there, George. <laughs> don't go there. Story. Thank you so much. Thank Appreciate you. it, both Thank of you. you. Always fun. <laughs> so, what is the Supreme Court likely to do? Let's continue our talk now with Derek Muller. He is an election law scholar who is a professor at the Law of Law at the University of Notre Dame. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. We're talking about this Supreme Court and what they really have ahead of them. They've got a conservative majority. We know that. What is your prediction on how these justices might rule on this Colorado issue, whether Trump can be on it, on the ballot or not? I mean, is it unanimous? Is it split? What are your thoughts? And there's so many ways for this court to go. That's one of the issues in this case. There are so many issues to address. What is an insurrection? How, what does it mean to engage in it? Does the First Amendment protect some of this speech? Does Congress have to step in? So my guess is that the Supreme Court is trying to dispatch of this case as quickly as possible and maybe as unanimously as possible. If they can find consensus for a unanimous per curiam opinion that will resolve it, uh, which probably means that Trump appears in the ballot, they reverse Colorado, I think that's going to be the inclination. But there's a chance that they're splintering on the court with so many issues that people want yeah. to move in different directions and they're unable to hold that. Tell me, is it possible for the audience with all the different issues that is before them, I and mean, you got immunity, you've got eligibility, obviously there is a particular order for which the court will consider cases and a process by which they are receiving and deciding whether to review these cases. But is there a chance that either in dicta, you know, that language that's used inside of an opinion that is dealing with something that's different from the actual um, issue and question before the court, could they maybe try to resolve this in short order together and try to consolidate? Uh, I think the odds on that are low. I think especially when you're dealing with questions of presidential immunity, you have those momentous cases in the past involving Richard Nixon or Bill Clinton and, and claims of presidential immunity. And I think this Trump case will be another one of those. And I think that's going to be momentous in its own right. And then this sort of ballot access issue, they want to address this quickly. There are voters who are going to be going to the polls in a matter yep. of days and, and starting to vote. So I think they're going to have to be forced to separate these issues and really uh, draw out this process, you know, through June, and as as painful as that might be for a political matter, but I think there's there's just so many issues on their plate to consider. And by the way, not even just judicially or electorally, administratively. I mean, these ballots have got to get printed. You can't go to like FedEx, Kinkos, or Staples, wherever you're printing stuff out, and just do it in a night. It takes a very long time for these states to figure out who's on their ballot, and they trying to change it is a very big um, big issue. But I wonder politically. What are the implications for Trump's reelection campaign of all of these things? I mean, he is a front runner and by a landslide so far, but we're still a ways away. Um, what do you see as the implications for his reelection or the campaign? Yeah, I'm watching the polling in the next week or two to see what happens. On the one hand, you might have voters emboldened saying this is another instance of the courts coming after Trump and they're inclined to support him all the more. At the same time, this is a very different kind of issue in Colorado. It's saying you're ineligible. 
I think there's a risk that voters around the country, not just in Colorado, look at his candidacy and wonder, am I voting for an ineligible candidate? Am I throwing my vote away? Should I be mm. looking to Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or somebody else? Um, I, I think it's an open question because we've never had a situation like this with a front runner facing uh, you know, being thrown off the ballot. And I think we'll see in the polls in the very near future how voters react. That's a really important point because you already have people thinking about quote unquote spoiler candidates. And what does it mean if I give this vote to somebody that might not ultimately prevail or has a very low probability of doing so? If ineligibility factors into people thinking, is it just a wasted vote? That might be the next frontier. Professor Derek Muller, thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. Well, President Biden, well, he is now weighing in on the decision in Colorado. I knew he would. He says it's clear that Trump is an insurrectionist, but there's still a big question. How will the voters see it? This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. So it's pretty unprecedented among a number of unprecedented questions. Is Donald Trump eligible to even be on the ballot in 2024? The Supreme Court will likely have to weigh in on whether his actions on January 6th and those that lead up, led up to it disqualify him under the 14th Amendment. And today, President Biden is saying this. Whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. But he's certainly supporting an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero. And uh, he seems to be doubling down on about everything. Well, joining me now to discuss is lawyer and author Scott Turow. He's written some bestsellers that you might know, like, well, for all the lawyers in the world, 1L, also Burden of Proof, and his latest, Suspect. He's also had a full career as a prosecutor. I'm so glad to have your voice on tonight. Scott, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing fine, Laura. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad you're here. Listen, you heard President Biden talk about this. He's, he's been pretty careful recently about when he weighs in on Trump and when he doesn't. But we have a sitting president agreeing that his predecessor and the one he's running against really 
was involved in an insurrection. You can't overstate how significant that is. Well, we all know the events of January 6, 2021 were pretty unique. And, uh, and I, you know, there's when somebody's trying to stop the Congress from ratifying the election, I don't know what else you call it, but an insurrection. So, you know, they enter the Capitol by force. It, it, it definitely meets the definition. So I'm not surprised to hear what President Biden had to say, and I probably would agree with him. You know, the Colorado Supreme Court seems to have a similar viewpoint. The district court in Colorado had a similar one as well, except they varied in two different directions. The trial court said, yeah, it was an insurrection. He engaged in it, but he's got to be on the ballot. The Supreme Court in Colorado said, yeah, he's engaged in an insurrection and he can't be on the ballot. What do you make of that choice? Well, the, uh, the district court in Colorado thought because the president is not um, named in that part of the uh, 14th Amendment that the president wasn't included. And I'm, there are some serious constitutional scholars who think the same thing. Um, the, you know, the Colorado Supreme Court pointed out that the language that's there, any office under the United States, has been interpreted many times as including the presidency. When you look at this, the real question so many people have, I mean, it's playing out in the courts right now. Congress um, comes to mind. Could they have done anything in the aftermath of January 6th that, frankly, could have resolved this before we even got here? Well, you know, it, 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 hindsight's always twenty twenty, Laura. Mm -hmm. But um, I, at the time, uh, you know, I was writing to friends of mine who served in Congress and going, well, why don't you use this provision? of the 14th Amendment, and I never got um, a really good answer. But, uh, you know, the Democrats obviously had the votes at that time to have passed a bill saying that Trump had engaged in insurrection and he was disqualified. Whether they would have gotten it through the Senate, whether they could have overcome uh, an undoubted Republican filibuster, I don't know. It really depends what Mitch McConnell would have allowed. But the, but the impeachment ended up being doomed by the fact that Trump was no longer the president. So, um, you know, as I said, hindsight's twenty twenty. but the Democrats probably went down the wrong road and, and could have tried to pass legislation. And that indeed is going to be one of the arguments as to whether the 14th Amendment is self-executing or has to be enabled by some legislation under it. You know, another big question, and forget just hindsight, reading the tea leaves in terms of the Supreme Court, I mean, we already know that the 2020 election, because of the statements that have been made, have cast a pretty big cloud over the legitimacy for some. I mean, a lot of people understand that it was not rigged. It was fair and free. Joe Biden is the duly elected president. But there are many who don't believe that to be the case. And there are questions now if the Supreme Court has anything to do about deciding eligibility immunity, that it might cast additional doubts over the legitimacy because they're putting their thumb on the scale. How do you see it? I, I, I think what you're talking about is probably going to um, come to pass, namely the court being very reluctant to decide who can and can't be a candidate for the president of the United States. The only thing about it is that it's that's somewhat in tension with the other issue you've been talking about today, whether Trump's immunity claims, his claim that he was, uh, that 
everything he did was while he was president, so he can't be prosecuted. Um, Those claims um, gained something because of uh, the Colorado case. In other words, if the court's going to say, you know, we want the people to decide, uh, not us, then they've got to give the people all the facts. And that means certainly whether or not Donald Trump is a felon. And you know, speeding the decision on the immunity and allowing the Trump the trial to take place means that the American voters will get an answer to that question. Is he a felon? Um, and in time, we'll, we'll know the answer. Either Trump will be convicted or he'll be acquitted and he can go on and campaign without that shadow over him. But I think the logic for the Supreme Court says um, let's let's get to the immunity issue and allow that trial to take place. A bureaucracy moving quickly, Scott Turow, how how novel to think about that very aspect of it. I, I know I have to go, but I cannot let you go without asking you about this great piece you have in The Atlantic. Because um, we're talking a lot about Trump, but you were talking a lot about um, what was going on with uh, Joe Biden. It was, in, it was in Vanity Fair, not The Atlantic, it was in Vanity Fair. Um, and the headline, right. why Joe Biden 81 needs to hand over the keys now, I mean, Forget talking about Trump. You don't think that Biden should be on the ballot? Well, I, I, I don't. I think that both of the major party candidates are too old um, to be running for president. And I say this as somebody who's going to be seventy-five on my next birthday. And I don't think we have to push eighty-year-old people uh, off the cliff. But being the president of the United States is a uniquely arduous job, and one where. Uh, you make a deal with the people that you're you're going to be able to carry on for all four years because it's a calamity in a democracy when a president is either either dies or becomes unable to function. And when people get into their 80s, the odds begin to mount that one of those things is going to happen. And uh, you know we're we're ignoring reality. We're playing the emperor's new clothes to pretend that either of these men are going to be invulnerable to the effects of age that we see so often in the people we love and we're close to. And neither one of them ought to be on the ballot for that reason, ignoring any matters of policy. Well, you know what? Every time I see that Scott Turow has written something, I encourage everyone to read it in full. And the Vanity Fair piece is no exception. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Laura, thanks. Always good to be with you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, look, Trump has repeatedly tried to discredit the eligibility of his rivals from Barack Obama to Ted Cruz. Remember that? But now that it's his own being questioned, well, the irony comes in pretty thick. We'll talk about it next. All right, so the former president, he never met a grievance he didn't like, or at least try to maybe exploit. He explains how he can say this tonight. I'll read it for you. The last time the Democrats took someone off the ballot was in 1860. They would not allow a man named Abraham Lincoln to be so much as mentioned in slave states. Not quite sure that applies to you. But Donald Trump is, as the kids say, big mad. He's mad about the Colorado Supreme Court ruling, taking the blunt side of a number two pencil and erasing his name from the ballot there. A little ironic because, remember, Trump made his political bones trying to disqualify 
other people from being the president. Here's a little crash course, Trump 101, we're going to call it. He started with a notorious and not a grain of truth to it claim that Barack Obama was not born in the United States. Why doesn't he show his birth certificate? I really believe there's a birth certificate. Why? Look, she's smiling. Why doesn't he show his birth certificate? You don't seem convinced that he has one. No, I'm not convinced that he has one. You Different said that you sent investigators to Hawaii and you said, quote, they cannot believe what they're finding. We're what have see they found? What happens? What George? have they found? Well, that's none of your business right now. Hmm. The country saw what happened when Donald Trump found out. President Barack Obama was born in the United States, period. Period. So what didn't work once, he tried again, but this time with Ted Cruz, and it was the exact same thing. He was born in Canada, and he actually had a Canadian passport along with a U.S. passport until just recently, I mean, like within the last couple of years. The problem is that if the Democrats bring a lawsuit, the lawsuit could take years to resolve. And how do you have a candidate where there's something, you know, over the head of the party and that individual? Hmm, that didn't age well. It also didn't work. It didn't really matter that it didn't work because Donald Trump did win the primary. Now, when it comes to Trump and maybe to his voters, the skeletons, they aren't reason to shy away. They appear to be selling points. I want to bring in former GOP Congressman Joe Walsh and former Obama White House Senior Director Nayara Huck. So glad to see both of you here tonight. I mean, when you look at it, it is a bit rich, right, to think, wait a second, you mean now people can't talk about disqualification? He really kind of made his political bones off of it, Nayara. Oh, projection, right? Yeah. He, he's so good at that. And in fact, the same article that talked about how he had copies of Hitler's speeches by his desk and used to read them, this is according to his ex-wife, uh, in that same article, we find out that he was a big proponent of Hitler's big lie. The idea that if you repeat something often enough, people will start to believe it. And that's so much of what the Donald Trump playbook is about, is just get it out there, right? Throw it against, you know, throw spaghetti against the wall, see what sticks, repeat that, repeat it, repeat it, and people start to believe. So they believe the grievances, right? They believe that he is a victim despite the fact that he has been a criminal before he even got into office. Of course, Trump would, obviously, he's been talking about yesterday about how he, the Hitler comparisons are not correct yeah. and we have not independently confirmed the Mein Kampf story, I will say that. However, your point is well taken, yes. He's a bad person, he's such a hypocrite, but his playbook, Laura, is he's the victim. He's the most persecuted human being that's ever lived. And this Colorado ruling is just, uh, it plays into that. It's such a political gift for him. As in, it was I the think. wrong decision for him to do it? As in, it is going to play into this narrative that everybody and their mother is trying to keep him off the ballot. And that is going to help him beyond just his hard, crazy base, I'm afraid of. Nair, do you think the same thing in terms of how it's going to, I mean, obviously we know it's going to be used, it's already being used as fodder for him. We, we even heard the Abraham Lincoln comparison discussion, right? But when you look at it, is this, for, if you're a strategist, is this what you want in terms of getting an advantage for Biden or even Nikki Haley or anyone else? Colorado is a blue state, right? It's not, it's not like what happens in Colorado is going to change the direction of Electoral College and who gets the presidency. This is also a Republican primary yeah. ballot measure, right? So 
Republican Party being what it is and Trump running it these days, he can figure out something and some other way to manipulate the system as he's done so far. So it doesn't necessarily get anything in terms of changing the calculus of where Democrats need to get votes. It does muddy the waters. Nobody, especially the folks who litigated Gore v. Bush v. Gore, uh, Ron Klain, former White House chief of staff for Biden, was one of them. No one wants to see another election go to this Supreme Court. Democrats want as clean an election as possible. And throwing the courts when it comes into who's on a ballot, what votes count and don't, does make that a little harder to do. Yeah, we're talking about Colorado, but let's go to another C state as well, California. We heard from the lieutenant governor there, and it seemed, well, let's play for a second for people to know what we're talking about. It's not maybe going to stay in California. I mean, Colorado, listen to this. We have never had a former president indicted for anything, but Donald Trump has been indicted four times on 91 felony counts. This is a highly unusual situation. Uh, and for the courts and the court in Colorado to make a determination that he meets the threshold as an insurrectionist, uh, we absolutely have to consider that in determining whether or not he's qualified to be on the ballot in California. That's pretty important that they're even considering exploring it. California, obviously, too, in terms of the blue yeah. versus red. But if one state does it and another and another, it becomes maybe the blue print. Yes. And if the Supreme Court affirms the Colorado ruling, you're going to have uh, and the floodgates are going to open. Look, I Donald Trump, to me, is an insurrectionist. I think he participated in and committed insurrection. But who am I? I'm just a former congressman. We need the Supreme Court or Congress. We need, I, I don't want, Laura, just a state Supreme Court or two in split decisions telling me what insurrection is. Mm. I, I want I mean, to come Congress could have done that, right? Congress there was, there was an opportunity for multiple Republican yeah. senators to actually remove Trump from Absolutely. office. Absolutely. This is the problem with this case is it can be right on the merits. It can have a valid argument in how it's determined, but it, it feels like such a last straw to hold somebody accountable who has managed to skirt and escape the rule of law and justice this far. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, look at that. Look at that beautiful agreement at oh the very my end. God. Oh, my goodness. Give it up. Should we all start braiding each other's hair? <laughs> this is, that was wonderful. Okay, well, thank End on you. that note. End I'll on, end on note. that note. Always glad to have you here, Naira. <laughs> Joe, I'm so glad you both were here. Look, look, look what we're doing. Kumbaya. <laughs> A surge at the southern border and a governor trying to take matters into his own hands. But many people are crying foul over Greg Abbott's latest moves. What does the El Paso mayor think about all of this? Well, I'm going to ask him. He's my, my guest next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Well, tonight, as the battle over immigration reform is playing out in Congress and, frankly, across the whole country, the nation is grappling with a surge of migrants. Thousands of migrants in Eagle Pass, Texas, have unlawfully crossed the border daily over the last week. 
And the migrant crisis is getting worse by the day. The volume of illegal crossings in El Paso, Texas, has gotten so bad, the government had to close railroad, railway crossings in the area. My next guest is the mayor of El Paso, Oscar Leeser. Mayor Leeser, thank you so much for being with us this evening. Everyone is watching very closely what's happening in your community and beyond. Um, the crossings, I understand, at the border are higher than ever. I mean, we're talking record-setting numbers. Tell me, what is it like there right now, where you are? Well, right now we're getting about 1,500 a day. And uh, last year we were a bit higher than that, but uh, the numbers had really had slowed down. And then after uh, Thanksgiving, the numbers continued to increase. And uh, mm. in the last week, uh, every day we're, we're experiencing about 1,500 a day. How is that sustainable for your community? What are you doing to address that or even absorb people? Well, it's not sustainable for any community. And, and it's really important that we, we understand that the immigration process is broken and that we have to treat everybody with dignity and respect when they do come into our country. But they're not coming to El Paso. They're, they're coming to the United States. And it's important that we help them get to the destination and, and work with them. And that's one of the things that we were very proud of, that we make sure that people are not out on the streets at night to have a bed to sleep in, a warm meal. And then we work with them to make sure that they get to their destination. And But at the end of the day, everything you see today, everything we've been working with, it's a band-aid, you know, and, and no community and no country really can withstand and continue to withstand the broken immigration process that, that we look at today. It's not a process that broke yesterday. It's been broken mm. for quite a while. And, and you're right, you were talking about a little while ago, Congress has to really address it and it has to be fixed. And it can't just be fixed here. It has to be fixed in the countries where it originates. And, and that's something that's going to be really important. And we've been working with all our partners, whether it's the state, the, the federal government and uh, we've been getting the proper funding to make sure that it's not on the back of the local taxpayers. But again, less than 1% of the people that cross the border stay in El Paso and they're here to go to the United States to make their life a better life, be able to work until we help them be able to find work and get work. It's going to continue to be a, a big crisis for our country. I mean, the idea of, you know, using El Paso as sort of a, a, a stopover into the rest of the United States is a really important point to think about as it relates to other states and where everyone ends up going. But you used the word dignity earlier, Mayor Lesser, Mayor Lesser, and um, it sticks in my mind because you've heard the former president using pretty extreme rhetoric in recent days, even invoking a phrase um, once used about immigration around immigration by Hitler, talking about the poisoning the blood of our country when it comes to those who come here and, and are immigrants, you know, that that is very disturbing for so many to hear and then try to instill to the rest of the world that we believe in a dignified migration process. Absolutely. And it's about time that we stopped extreme and inflammatory remarks and start focusing on fixing the process, fixing the broken immigration program. And, you know, we can talk about it and we can make remarks that really are not going to fix it, but we need to fix a broken process. We need to stop putting a Band-Aid on it and mm -hmm. the borders are not open, but yet we continue to see record numbers. So, you know, it's uh, it's time to change what we're doing today and, and move forward in working with the other countries to be able to fix it. Governor Abbott recently enacted a law where he gave 
local law enforcement the power to arrest and also state judges to then deport. Has that been something that you think will be effective in your community or does it present challenges in terms of how law enforcement will have that amount of power? You know, and we're talking about SB4 and mm -hmm. the law at uh, a city like El Paso could not enforce immigration laws. We don't have the manpower and we wouldn't be able to do it. And we need to make sure our number one priority is the safety of our community. And we need to work on that. But for us to be able to racially profile, we wouldn't do it. And, and that's something we will not do. Talking to the police chief, talking to the sheriff, you know, we'll continue to make sure our community is safe and not racially profiled and make sure that uh, we continue to work in a way that we're not going to be able to to do the um, immigration. We're not going to enforce immigration laws. Mm. We can't do that. Mayor Oscar Lisa, you're on the front lines. Thank you for sharing what it's like. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm very proud of our community because we treat people the way people need to be treated. So thank you. I hope that's contagious, Mayor. Thank you so much. Thank you. A group of Americans arriving tonight from Venezuela as part of a prisoner swap, including one that we talked about on this very show. What led the Biden administration to make a deal with Venezuela's strongman? That's next. Tonight, there is a major development, a story we've been following very closely. Tonight, Savoy Wright, an American wrongfully held in Venezuela since October, arrived back in the United States after being released from detention. He's one of 10 Americans freed in a deal between the Biden administration and Venezuela. Two weeks ago, his family told me that Wright was mistreated while in detention. Here's what he said when he landed in Texas. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, free at last. I didn't know if I would ever make it out. And it's, it's really scary to be in a place where you're used to having freedoms and you're locked into a cell, sometimes with, with four other people, very tiny cell. Now, as part of the deal to free the detainees, the U.S. agreed to release a key ally, a Venezuelan strongman, Nicolas Maduro. And Venezuela agreed to move toward democratic elections. Thank you so much for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.